So I want you to open your Bibles to Philippians 1, verse 9. Now, I want to make a theologically profound statement here. The best music came out of the 60s and the 70s. I'm just clear. Everything else is adequate. That was the best music in that era. There was a group called the Grassroots, and they had a hit. One of their big hits was an oxymoronic title. It was Two Divided by Love, which makes absolutely no sense unless you're the church. We are an entity that from day one has been completely divided by our different understanding of love and its application. When, uh, if you go to the early church, right, persecution's intense, so some people pack out, persecution lets up, they want to come back into the church, they're met with two ideas. They're met some with what they feel well-meaning is a loving rebuke. You left the church, you backed out on Jesus, you can't just come back in here. Then another group said, no, 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 we need to forgive them. There's God's grace. He loves them. We can let them back in. So they were divided. Fast forward even to our era, my, at my wife and our wedding, when a young man, I think he's saying, I can't really remember that far back anymore, but I, I think he's saying in our wedding, that was humorous, apparently not. But he, uh, great Christian young man, he went to New York, though, after college, got involved in uh, homosexual lifestyle, but repented, came back home, and subsequent to his repentance, found out he had AIDS at a time when that was a death sentence, and so sure enough, he began to die. I guarantee you there were two responses in Mississippi Baptist, particularly to him. One was, look, it's his fault. He lived that lifestyle. We don't need to love him easily because people need to understand this is not and does not represent the holiness of God. And then there were others saying, no, no, no. He's dying. He repented. We need to forgive him. We need to love him. So we literally have always been as a church divided by the understanding of love. And that is precisely, matter of fact, not just divided, we fight over it which oddly makes no sense, right? The Bible says God is love. We are his image bearers, and particularly those of us that Paul has already said that what God's done in us, he's going to finish under the day of Christ. So you would think those of us particularly that are being reoriented into the image of God more and more and more, that we would surely have a correct grasp. But we don't. That's why he prays. He's in jail. He's praying. Here's what he says. Now, when you first read this, it's going to seem to be just a bunch of stuff stuck together, but he's going to lay out a sequential argument that is really brief, and it's the only answer to what we face. Listen to what he says. I pray this, that your love might more and more abound so here's what he says. Obviously, his first statement is, we're never going to perfectly get this thing down. So he says, I'm praying for you as a church. And, and he's talking about horizontal love 
based on biblical love. That was his statement in verse 8. I have this great affection for you because of my affection for Christ. And then he's going to talk about, in a few minutes, the lost coming to Christ. So he's talking about, when he says, I want your love to abound more and more, a horizontal love, lost and saved, based on my love for Christ. Now watch what he says. Follow his argument. I pray this, that your love might abound more and more in, first thing he says, in knowledge. He wants us to know what knowledge is about biblical love. Well, that's this. If I want to know how to love, and I want to love in knowledge, then I've got to know what this Bible says about love, and that's part of the problem. It says two things. You have Jesus in John 4, sitting with a lady at a well, Samaritan woman. She comes up, they engage in a conversation, and Jesus starts out, and she says, you know, we shouldn't be talking. What are you doing? And Jesus finally says, look, if you knew who I was, you could ask me, I'd give you living water. Now, from that tender solicitation, we wind up seeing a little bit of rebuke when he says, bring your husband. But there's this tender offer of a water of life in John 4, but then you fast forward to John 6. You have an emotional rebuke, literally to 15,000 people. Jesus grew up as a Jew. He knew what emotional taboos were, particularly in the home. He grew up in a Jewish home, so he knew. And we see it, as a matter of fact, when they decide that the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, they do, though, demand a couple of things be kept. And one of them was, you don't eat meat with the blood in it. That was a huge thing. And said to the Gentiles, we'll give up circumcision, but we're not giving that up. And the Gentiles said, no problem. They knew the emotional depth of eating meat with the blood in it for a Jew. Jesus, in John 6, to 15,000 people says over and over and over, he offers a virtual and different metaphor, but identical statement, not living water, but that he's the bread of life. Same concept, just a different metaphor. But the way he offers it is he says, he's got 15,000 people, and he says about five times, <clears throat> if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. It was an emotional rebuke to which they responded by 15,000 people leaving. The Bible, the next thing it says, this is a hard saying, and the next thing it says, he turns to the 12. Everybody else left. They didn't like the emotional rebuke. So we've got John 4. We have Jesus offering this tender solicitation, and now we've got John 6 where we have this emotional rebuke. Come to Zacchaeus. I don't want to hear any stuff about short people. You come to Zacchaeus. He's in the tree. What does Jesus do? Does he rebuke him? No. He comes in and says, hey, Zach, going to Burger King. Hurry down. So they go to his house, have lunch. Kind of rebukes himself. But there's this tender solicitation. At another point, he looks at the religious leadership and says, you guys, you guys are whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Now, Jesus is God. 
So there was nothing he said or did that did not come out of his love. So you have this twofold issue. You've got times where there's a tender solicitation, and you've got other times where there's a deep emotional rebuke. You come to the epistles, you have the same thing. The guy that wrote this, Galatians 6, he said, if you find a brother overtaken in a fault, restore him. Literally, the Greek word means <clears throat> to mend the net. So he said, pull him into your life, work with him, fix him, get him where he can go back and do what he needs to do. So there's this tender pulling them into my life. But then you come to 1 Corinthians 5 and you got a guy overtaken in a fault and he says, get him out of the church. Matter of fact, his phraseology is deliver him over to Satan. So when we come to this book, we face both issues. There are times when love demands a rebuke and there are times when love demands a tender solicitation. So what do we do Look at what he prayed. I pray that you abound more and more in knowledge and in every kind of insight. Now, obviously, they don't have that insight. That's why he's praying for them. And so the obvious person, the only person to give us correct insight is the Holy Spirit within us. So the Holy Spirit in us who wrote this book now will guide us into how to implement this. Do we start with a rebuke? Do we start with tender solicitation? How do we work this? How do we nuance between these two edges? We need two things. We need the knowledge of the word of God, and then we need the absolute interior guidance from the Holy Spirit. When the Bible says we're to be filled with the Spirit, that is not some option. It is a demand. Because you and I cannot do effective ministry if we are not filled by God's Spirit. And the only way for me to correctly apply these two edges is if the Holy Spirit gives me insight into what he wrote. So he's never going to contradict that. And I know for some of us as seminarians, this is a terrifying thought because we're so caught up in the objective word of God, we forget the Holy Spirit does actually guide us. He is Jesus in us until we see him again. So understand we need two things that Paul prays for. We need a grasp of love in this scripture, and we need insight from the Holy Spirit. Here's why. Most of us will love, will choose the edge that fits our personality. If you're type A, you're going to lean toward the rebuke edge. If you're a mercy guy, the kind of person that can't drive over a squirrel, I don't understand those people, but there are people like that in the world. So if you're a mercy guy, you're going to lean toward the tenderness. And so we don't want to love out of our personality. We want to love out of the knowledge in this book and the insight from the Holy Spirit. So watch now. It says, I'm praying for you. I want you to know the knowledge of how to love. I want you to have the insight from the Holy Spirit so you do not love out of your personality, but you love out of the direction of the Spirit leading you into what he's written and how to apply it, how to nuance it. And look at what he says. So that, now this is a difficult thing to translate, but literally, so that you might approve the things that are excellent. Now, it's really the first Greek word is the idea of something being tested and found genuine. In other words, so that you would authentically 
The next word is actually the things that are different. We translated excellence because the real idea is that I'm going to be an authentic judge of the excellence of the Father that is I'm going to love the way he loves, not the way the world loves. So I'm going to show his excellence. So here's what he says. I'm praying for you that you love more and more. I want you to do it in the knowledge of the scripture. I want you to do it with the inside of the Holy Spirit. And here's why. Because if you love properly, you will show off the excellence of the king to a culture that does not know how excellent he is. So it is imperative that we love correctly. So my first church was Oakwood, Texas. Now we were literally, I was told, and they were right, we were the smallest church in the smallest association in Texas. We had six churches, we were the smallest. We ran about 25. So uh, pastoring there, great ministry, 30 year and a half. But a young teenage girl in town uh, stole a car. So she got caught, brought before the judge. Now, this only happens in East Texas, okay? The judge said, what's your first offense? I'm gonna give you two options. You can go to jail or go to church. What do you want to do? She said, oh, I'll, I'll go to church. Now, the judge was smart. He said, okay, which church are you going to this Sunday? She said, I'll go to the one on the hill, which was the church I was pastoring. So she and her mother came. I don't mean to brag, but my preaching was obviously powerful. <laughs> because she waited an entire 24 hours before she stole another car. <laughs> so she's back before the judge. He says, have a nice day. Ships her off to jail. But her mother stayed. Now, mother, I have to be careful. My wife's always warned me, don't use the words you normally use. So I want to say this carefully, but we get the drift here. Her mother was devalued by the culture in the town. Small town, 250 people. Everybody knew who she was. She was not valued, and kind of rightfully so. She, her lifestyle was not in any way godly or holy. So her daughter didn't come back. Obviously, she's going to jail, but her mother stayed. And her mother one night took a Sunday school quarterly. And at 6 o'clock, she started reading not only the quarterly, but every verse, every reference verse in that entire quarterly. It took her six hours. She read from 6 to midnight. And she found Christ. It was rich. So she comes forward the next Sunday morning. Now, again, we're a small little church, maybe 10, 15 yards to the back. So she comes forward. She's obviously, and I was always so grateful for this, she's obviously intensely emotional about what's happened to her. She is just gripped. And so she's weeping. And when she gets to the front, the wife of my Sunday school director, and if you know anything about an East Texas Baptist church, he's probably the most powerful man in the church. His wife says out loud, everybody heard it, thankfully except her, and no one told her. But his wife said, I cannot believe we're letting that riffraff in here. Now, that's a rebuking love. 
but it did not show off the excellence of the father. Had she come up to her afterwards and said, look, you don't deserve to be here, but neither do I. Neither does anybody else in this room. So we're grateful you've discovered what we've discovered, that we are sinners saved by the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ, and we're just glad you're in the family. That would have been powerful and would have shown off both the rebuke edge and the loving edge and been clear as to the excellence of Christ. But that's not what she did. The other day, Amy Grant, who's married to Vince Gill, had a her niece was getting married. As a matter of fact, as Amy puts it, bride to bride, the two brides. And so she had them marry on the same ranch that she and Vince Gill lived on and were married at. And her statement was, she said, of course, she got kind of slammed by that. And so her statement was, look, Jesus put it all on the line. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love others as yourself. She said, that's all I need to know. Now, Certainly, there's a tender solicitation there. But what she should have added is, look, I love you, but this is not the best God has for you. Here's what he says in his word, and we need to stand there. I love you, but I love the Father, and I want his best for you, not my best for you. But she too lost a chance to proclaim the excellence of the Father. So you and I have this deep responsibility, according to Paul, that I need to love in knowledge, insight, so that while I'm here, I show off the excellence of the Father and one other reason. Look at what he says. In order that you might be genuine, I love that word, it means judged by light, that you might be genuine and blameless In the day of Christ, because you have been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which is through Jesus Christ, resulting in the glory and praise of God. Here's what he says. I want you, when you stand before Jesus Christ, that your life holistically, 1 Corinthians, is not burned up, but your life stands, what you've done stands, and your life, because you have loved properly and shown the excellence of the Father, you bring glory and praise from who you are to him when you stand before Jesus Christ in an evaluative judgment. Now, there's the text. So let's back it up. He says, I want us to be the kind of people that when we stand at the judgment, not the bema, but when we stand in an evaluative judgment by Jesus Christ, that we will bring praise and glory to him. Why? Because while we were here, we showed off his excellence. How? Because we loved with the Holy Spirit insight and the Holy Spirit writings. And we abounded more and more in that. Here's the interesting thing to me. Why does Paul make this a prayer? Why doesn't he just lay it out as a, as a law, as a commandment, as an imperative? He doesn't do that. He says, I'm praying for you in this church that you would abound more and more knowledge, insight, so that 
You show off his excellence and you stand well when you face it. Why is it a matter of prayer? I think two things. I think Paul clearly understood. I don't think he was in the jail cell thinking, I don't have any magazines or internet, so I'm just going to pray. I don't think that's what he was doing. I think Paul knew that if he prayed under the leadership of the Spirit, through the access of the blood of Christ to the Father, that the Father would answer that prayer for these Philippians. I think he thought that. I'm not sure we do all the time, but I think he thought that. But I think the second reason is this. I think Paul knew from his own life and his own struggle, right before the second missionary journey, he and Barnabas meet, big buds, right? John Mark packed out. So they meet at the dock. Here's Barnabas. Paul's excited. They're fixing to travel. He looks. Here's John Mark. He looks at Barnabas and says, what in the world is he doing here? Well, he's coming with us. No. He quit. He does not have the right. Paul's immediate personality response would be a rebuking love because he's type A. Barnabas has the gift of mercy, and he says, no, he's going with us. So we have two guys that literally were divided by view of love. I think that's why Paul wrote this, because he knew in his own life he struggled with it. He knew they would struggle with it. Sure enough, we struggle with it. So maybe the best thing you and I could do is whatever spiritual community we live in, that you make sure this is an aspect of your intercessory prayer for for those in your group. And who knows? If we got everybody to do this, we might heal Twitter. Twitter.